Listener Production. And hit it. I told you to hit it and you took a sip of your booze first. <laughs> okay, ready? Ready? And uh, hit it. Mucha Diaz Mezami and welcome to another episode <laughs> of Just the Gist, a weekly-ish podcast where Rosie Waterland gives us just the gist of what we need to know about a topic of her choosing. I'm Jacob Stanley, and this week I, along with you, will be learning about... Well, I've got some news for you, Jacob. <laughs> oh. So, you know how I finished a really big project yesterday, work-wise, mm. and when you talked to me last night, I was a little shit-faced mm-hmm. because I was very excited about having finished the project. And I said to you, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to wake up early enough to finish my research for my Just the Gist topic. And then I did wake up early enough. I will give myself that. I felt a little dusty and hungover, but I was fine. But then because today I was coming into the Podcast One studio to do this recording with you, I was so excited at the prospect of leaving the house (laughs) and it's the first time in almost a month that I had like a reason to put on makeup and do my hair and so the time that I should have spent um, getting all my notes together and finishing getting my just the gist ready for this week, I instead spent grooming myself and doing my hair and makeup. (laughs) So... I look beautiful. I'm even wearing the glamorous um, outfit that I wore for my one-woman show back in Adelaide before it got rescheduled and cancelled. But all of this is my meandering way of saying I've done nothing and so we are reverting to your Just the Gist topic that I know you had prepared earlier because you told me so last night, sucker. (laughs) So... The topic we are hearing about this week is... Are you doing a breaking news first? Yeah, let's do breaking news. All right, take it away. Breaking news, breaking news. X-ray, X-ray, read all about it. See? Uh, I got the scoop. See? Breaking news, X-ray. Read all about it. News breaking. Oh, by the way, a bunch of people messaged me um, on the Just The Gist podcast Instagram and also on my private Instagram saying that um, there's a reason you can't spot the origin of my breaking news accent. And that's because I'm doing this accent that was invented by the movie studios back in the 30s. They called it like a transatlantic accent because they didn't want people to know if you were from Europe or America. And that's the accent I'm doing, which I would like to say I've been doing on purpose this whole time. That was my intention. Because <laughs> this girl puts in the work. I she- put in the work. Okay, so breaking news this week is uh, I'm obsessed with Gavin the giant baby. <laughs> okay, there's a giant baby. So everyone's at home, everyone's going crazy. So there's a bunch of just weird memes happening. And there was TikTok footage, and TikTok is something I still don't quite understand. But there was TikTok footage of this baby that kind of looks like a 45-year-old southern bogan, but a baby. Mm. And 
everybody's been going on about how this baby is like hideous and the second coming of Lucifer and it's like a possessed weird baby. They've been saying actually really mean things about this baby and I was reading this morning they did an interview with the baby's mum and the baby's called Gavin which I just (laughs) I feel like people aren't called Gavin as babies but anyway Um, and she's been saying that um, she's really hurt by all the mean things people are saying about her giant baby Gavin and he's actually not a baby he's actually three years old but he just has a really round baby head and he looks bald because he doesn't have a lot of hair so he's a three-year-old that looks like a baby (laughs) but he has the body and height of a three-year-old and I went through a bunch of Gavin's other TikToks and he is a very odd-looking baby. (laughs) Are you looking at him right now? Yes. But Gavin's kind of become a little internet celeb because Gavin is a giant 45-year-old baby and I'm obsessed with him. (laughs) So I don't know if it's breaking news, but it's just something on my going crazy quarantine brain, you know. You are broken. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm broken. I think this is all just a long way of saying I've snapped. (laughs) I've lost it. I mean, (sighs) I just, this is the first time I've had my hair and makeup done in a month. Um, I accidentally moved in with my very new boyfriend and that's been happening. He pointed out to me today that the last time he saw me with hair and makeup on was my grandpa's funeral a month ago. (laughs) So the mystery is well and truly gone from our four-month relationship. <laughs> um, it's all just, you know. And what have you come to learn about him? He really is like a 55-year-old man. He just is quite funny. He is really a young fogey. That's what people call him, and he really is one. Like, it's not a put-on. A lot of people think that Caleb is quite performative when he's on television and when he does public stuff Mm. in that he comes across like a 55-year-old weird conservative in like this, you know, 20-year-old body, but he actually is just like that all the time. You are living with a 55-year-old man. You're practically imprisoned with a 55-year-old man. Well, yeah, it is interesting. It is. It's definitely um, launched things you know, forward in a way that we weren't expecting very quickly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's nice. It's nice having someone there. I mean, I'd be going crazy if I was stuck home by myself. But mm-hmm. do you have any breaking news, Jacob? For me, breaking news. Um, oh, those hundreds of thousands of velocity points that I was um, planning to put to very good use. Uh, oh. Gone into the ether because of what's happened with Virgin Australia going into receivership. So um, time will tell. But um, yeah, that was real fun to wake up to yesterday. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that that's happening. So that's the only headline that I really know about. Breaking news with me. I'm <laughs> really enjoying doing absolutely nothing at the moment. And mm. saving the world by doing that. So, mm. yeah, well done, you. For a while. You're a hero. <laughs> As are you. A true hero. So, we've got Gavin the baby. We've got me stuck with a 55 year old man in my house. Virgin collapsing. Mm-hmm. You not doing anything and being a hero in the process. Is there any other breaking news? I think that's it, really, this week. Wait, can you explain to me Florida? So I know that Florida 
closed down, but now they're opening back up? Well, yeah, people in America are going nuts and saying that um, corona isn't that bad and that the states shutting down is taking away, like, their liberties and freedoms to go about as they please. And so some of the dumbest states, like, have just been like, yeah, F saving people. We're opening. And so Florida, I, like, I assume that's how they talk there, were just like, F all y'all, and they just opened everything back up. So I don't know. I don't know what's happening. But, you know, America has had more people die than anywhere else in the world now. Mm. Um, they've got more cases than anywhere else in the world now, assuming China's being honest mm. about their numbers. But, um, and I don't know, they just seem to, um, Trump is just so much of a bizarre farce that I can't even keep track of it. Oh, those poor suckers. All right. That was breaking news, a breaking news. And I think we stalled enough so Jacob could get his notes together because I let the team down and did my hair and makeup instead today. And I feel amazing. It feels so nice. And I did have to learn to do winged liner again because as I posted on my Instagram a few days ago, my very last lash extension fell out. So I am now rosy natural lashes and I keep looking in the mirror and refusing to accept that this is what I actually look like um, because I've forgotten what I as a human person look like without lash extensions. Mm. Okay, so I'm so ready for your topic. What is it? Well, last week I brought you Imelda Marcos, which was... Shoes Glorious Shoes, the Imelda Marcos story. Um, The reason that I chose to go with Imelda was because one time Miss Moira Rose was debating whether she (laughs) would go ahead and perform Shoes Glorious Shoes for Asbestos Fest or One Crazy Summer, the Patty Hearst story. (laughs) So this week I bring to you the tale of Patricia Campbell Hearst. bit about it, but I haven't looked into it yet. But um, I cannot believe that you are basically doing Moira Rose Shits Creek themed topics. Correct. It's amazing. I'm okay. I'm going to stick with that. So the eyes of the lonely world are on you, Patty. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight, Patty. Five, six, seven, eight. Nine, <laughs> ten, eleven, twelve. <laughs> Do you know how many people have messaged me to say thank you for the record about Shit's Creek? I've just started watching it and I love it so much. Yeah, it's so we've got so many people into Shit's Creek. Anyway, okay, take it away. All right, so the first time I'd ever heard the name Patty Hurst was on Shit's Creek, and that's what. Are you joking? Yeah, I knew nothing about this story oh. whatsoever. Um, okay, so this story, it's. About a wealthy heiress who's kidnapped by a ragtag bunch of young Marxist revolutionaries and then she quickly becomes one of America's most wanted criminals. And That's some beautiful copy. Did you write that? <sighs> I agree. <laughs> kidnapped, but wait, say that again. Kidnapped by a bunch of ragtag Marx- Marxist revolutionaries. And... And then she went on to become one of America's most wanted criminals. Wow, you put way more effort into your notes than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that 
was beautiful. I'm not spending my time doing my hair and makeup. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right. So this story takes place in California and it's the mid 1970s, which was a really tumultuous time and a very volatile place. And especially the big cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco, there were cults and there were murders and there were frequent violent protests. And mm. across the country, um, there was this sense of constant chaos. Every year there were more than a thousand politically motivated bombings um, and most of them were concentrated on the West Coast. So um, they've come out of the peace and love hippie era. They've come out of the Vietnam War and it's a really volatile time in the US. Um, and there's lots and lots of protest action going on. Mm. Step one, I'm going to start off by introducing the two main characters and start okay. with Patricia Campbell Hurst. Um, she was born into a family that was sickeningly wealthy and quite famous. Yeah, what is, I know the Hurst name. Is that like publishing? It is, yes. So her grandfather owned the largest media company in the world. Uh, time. Yeah. Um, and he was already born into wealth, but then he took that wealth and he grew it to become one of the richest, most famous people on the planet. So, so kind of like the Murdochs, kind of like very, Rupert yeah, Murdoch yeah, yeah. And developed News Corp. We recognize names like Bezos and Zuckerberg and Gates and yeah. Jobs today. You recognize Hearst in that way back then. Um, yeah. He owned 28 of the biggest newspapers in the US and had a combined readership Ooh. of 20 million people. Um, was- and he was all about the dollar. So he pretty much invented tabloid journalism. They used to call that yellow journalism back there. Um, and this kind of became the prototype for clickbait. So, Do you know why they called it yellow journalism? Um, because they had these cartoons of yellow-coloured characters on the front pages a lot of the time. Oh, oh yes, I remember. I've seen those old-school covers where it's got that, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And the sorts of things that they would publish are the types of things that we'd call fake news today. So they'd use really dramatic headlines and publish made up quotes from anonymous sources. And when you look some of them up, some of them, you could imagine seeing them today on places like the Daily Mail. Woman patient uses whip on doctor. Her reasons may sound. Or like, it's kind of like those um, magazines that are, they say only housewives read that are still in Woolworths, like take five and that's yes. life. Those yeah. ones that have those crazy, crazy, like my dead grandfather, uh, kidnapped my cousin and now they have cat hybrid children. I ate my twin is one of my yes. that I've ever seen. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> okay, yes, cool. So right. He was very famous and very wealthy. He wasn't known for being scrupulous. Um, mm. And he was actually the inspiration for the main character in Citizen Kane as well. And he really wasn't flattered mm. by his depiction in that movie. So he tried to shut the movie down completely and he failed at that attempt, obviously. So then he just got his papers to run really negative reviews of the movie, hoping that no one would ever see it and it would die. Um, of course, that didn't really work out. <laughs> that didn't work out. <laughs> so then Patricia's born in 1954 and she's the middle child. She's the third mm-hmm. of five daughters. Um, and she's her father, Randy's favourite. He treated her the most like a son because she was the most sort of tomboyish. So he'd take her to do the sorts of things that all young boys like to do, like hunting for ducks, which I know I really miss from 
<laughs> um, and he was daddy's favorite. She was the apple of his eye. Um, her yeah. relationship with her mother was a bit different though. So Patty and her mother, Catherine, came into quite a lot of conflict, a lot more mm. than any of her sisters did because her mother was the archetypal southern belle who expected her daughters to always be really ladylike and she wanted them to grow up and marry well and take their place in respectable society like she did and just really didn't love that journey for herself so there was quite a bit of tension there between her and her (laughs) mom in the early days i really don't love that for you To shove in another Shit's Creek reference. Yeah. Um, so the point is, Patty did live a very privileged childhood. She grew up in a place called San Mateo, which is one of the five wealthiest towns in the US and mm-hmm. some of the best schools in the country. Most of them were Catholic schools. Um, and she was a bit of a rebel from a really young age. And so um, she'd intentionally go a little wild and was kicked out of a few of her schools. They've demonstrated mm. to her mother that she was just not going to conform to what her expectations were. And so then when she was in her mid-teens, she found the oldest trick in the book to really piss your parents off. So real cliched trope, she starts a relationship with one of the neighbourhood poors. So when she was... <laughs> one of the neighbourhood poors. <laughs> She's slumming it. Mm-hmm. 16 years old, although the timeline suggests she might have actually been only 15. She developed mm-hmm. a crush on one of her teachers and started pursuing him. Um, oh. He started off as her guitar teacher and then she arranged for him to be hired as her maths tutor so that she could get closer to him. He was seven years older than she was and his <laughs> name is Stephen Weed, which sounds exactly like the sort of fake name that a small dealer in San Francisco would come up with in the 70s. (laughs) She started this relentless campaign to seduce him and he didn't do a whole lot to resist and no one seemed to have a problem with the fact that a 23-year-old teacher was now dating his 15 or 16-year-old student. Um, So... It's like Selma Blair in Cruel Intentions. Yeah, just like that. With her violin teacher. Yeah, Yeah. except in that movie they treat it like it's scandalous, mostly because it's black. Here in this case, (laughs) she saw this as this big act of rebellion, but no one really tried to stand in her way, even though her parents didn't (laughs) approve. Um, Imagine putting the effort in to seduce someone that, like, you're not that into just to annoy your parents and then your parents are like, eh. Exactly. You'd be like, oh, man, I did weird sex shit for nothing. Her dad was just drinking so much all the time that he never really was fussed by anything that was going on at this point. Mm. Um, And also she was his favourite, so she could really do no wrong. Right. He's just a rich kid who just has always been rich and just stumbles through life being rich. Yeah, he'd been given jobs, in inverted commas, at some of the publications where he really would only show up a couple of times a week and make it clear to everyone that he was going to be going out fishing the next day. So he just needed to as much done as he could and then he'd close himself off in his office and do nothing. What a life. (laughs) What a life. Okay, all right, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So meanwhile, Catherine, she wasn't a fan of Stephen. She thought he was just boring and charmless and an obvious gold digger and total loser. But because she was a mm-hmm. lady who'd been raised in polite society, she didn't do anything to stand in her daughter's way. Um, the only thing that she couldn't stand, though, was the fact that he had a moustache. So she <laughs> a razor one time as 
a gift slash hint. Hint. Um, use it, of course, um, because he needed that moustache to really look the part of a predatory maths teacher and genuinely nailed that. You need to have a look at some pictures of him because he's got the round glasses, the moustache, he's wearing a suit, and when he's sort of hovering over Paddy in these photos, he actually looks more like a father figure than a boyfriend. Oh, my God, I'm looking it up right now. Wait, hold on. Ew, he even has the pedo-style glasses. Mm-hmm. All right, so Patty, um, she's feisty, but she is a very, very good student. And she graduated a year early from high school and she went to college. And at that point, she moved in with Stephen. And then they got engaged when she was just 19 years old. And they moved to Berkeley together because he'd received a graduate fellowship there, which only paid him $400 a month, which is fine. But she's from one of the wealthiest families in the world. So this yes. just classic rich girl slumming it, Princess Jasmine, exploring mm. bar. Yeah. Um, anyway, at this time, she's studying at Berkeley. He's teaching there. And things started to get a little bit tense between them. The shine started to wear off the relationship. She was getting a bit bored. Well, the novelty of being poor wears off Pretty quickly, I'd say. So she started getting a little bit more experimental with some of the people that she was going to college with. She was um, trying out different drugs and she really embraced that bohemian student lifestyle. And What year is this? Uh, 73, 74. Okay. Yeah. Um, she had some sympathies for some of the pretty radical student groups, which makes sense because Berkeley was like the country's epicenter for extreme leftist student organizations. And it was pretty much mainstream mm. to be radical there at that time. So mm-hmm. she was surrounded by those kids and they were all the cool kids and she was getting to know them a bit better. So we've met Patty. We'll put a little pin in her and we'll come back to her soon because now we need to meet the next main character whose name is Donald DeFreeze. Ooh. DeFreeze. Uh, He sounds like the, the, like, cartoon mascot for an ice cream chain. (laughs) And wait till you hear what he changes his name to. Okay. Um. But, yeah, it, that in on its own sounds like a made-up name. But 1969, he's in prison in a place called Vacaville, and he'd actually been in prison in and out for most of his life. Um, yeah. This time he was there after he attacked a prostitute and stole a check from her and then went and tried to cash the check and was immediately caught. So um, uh, clearly he's a criminal mastermind genius with really mm-hmm. huge plans. Yeah. While he was in prison, he started having regular meetings with some of the students from Berkeley who were part of the California prison movement, where they would go and visit prisons as volunteers to help educate some of the inmates. Um, And to a greater extent, really, they were trying to politicize them and encourage them to start riots and to protest more about the situation that they were in. God, there really is nothing worse than like rich, privileged kids who try way too hard to be super woke. Mm -hmm. Like, imagine going to a prison where you could do practical things like teach people how to get housing when they leave, teach people how to get, you know, work when they leave, teach people practical skills, but instead you go in there and teach them about, like, your woke political philosophies. Get effed. Exactly. 
So they okay, feel like they're going to be the saviors of these prisoners by going in and teaching them about Marx and about Lenin because oh my God. have been able to break free of these privileged upbringings that they endured in these affluent white <laughs> suburbs where they grew up. And <laughs> now they want to... Makes me want to punch faces. <laughs> um, and they claimed that they wanted to see a major revolution in America, but I don't think they really had any concept of what that could be and would look like in reality for them. Um, but two of these students that were meeting with Donald DeFries were called mm. Willie Wolf and Russell Little. <laughs> Again. None of these are real names. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> as fictional as these names already sound, they all end up coming up with code names down the track. So <laughs> we flash forward now. Four years later, 1973, DeFries mm. escaped prison and he made a beeline straight to Berkeley because he knew that he could hang out with this group of woke white students that he met mm-hmm. in Vacaville, which included Willie Wolf and Russ Little. And <laughs> when they got together, they're hanging out, they're taking a whole lot of drugs and they come up with the concept to start the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army. And from this point on, we are going to refer to the United Federated Forces of the Symbionese Liberation Army as the SLA. What does Symbionese mean? <laughs> We're going to get to talking about oh, all three okay. terms there. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, all right. So Donald wasn't messing around. He declared himself the general field marshal of the SLA. And hey, good on him. He changed his name to Sinku Mtume. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) And then all members of the SLA had to then change their name as well and take on some sort of cool code name like they're an X-Man or something. So they were sort of like Mm. the Deadly Viper Assassination Squad in Kill Bill or a group of seven-year-olds who've set up a clubhouse. (laughs) Um, God, I hate rich kids. (laughs) And I love that they're also doing essentially what Patty was doing. They're like slumming it with a paw. Exactly. And I bet they feel so legit because they've got someone who's actually been in prison hanging out with them. And I'll go ahead and point this out now and we'll revisit it. Most of them were theatre students. (laughs) (laughs) Upper middle class, white family. Of course, of course, of course. A taste for the dramatic and this was the sort of thing that was going to satisfy them. Yeah. So it only just took them... few short months to get to the double digits for membership. Um, They gathered an impressive 10 soldiers for this army, which included Willie and Russ. Um, And if you're wondering, they changed their names to Cujo and Osceola or Ossie. (laughs) You'd think Willie Wolf and Russ Little would change, would make their code names like John Smith and Michael Bond. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) Ridiculous. Cujo. Okay, keep going. I haven't actually looked up what these names mean, but most code names that people came up with had some sort of um, meaning that linked back to slaves in Africa or revolutionaries in South America, something along those. Oh, because upper middle class drama students in California definitely linked to slaves in Africa. Yeah. (laughs) 
All right, so they all took all of this very, very seriously and they wrote and published a manifesto that they called the Symbionese Liberation Army Declaration of Revolutionary War and the Symbionese Program, which was basically just this confused <laughs> mishmash of various different leftist ideas. There was a little bit of communism and a bit of Marxism and a bit of anarchism and a bit of feminism and not a lot of it made sense and some of yeah. it predicted the other bits. They didn't really understand the buzzwords that they were using in this manifesto. Mm-hmm. But they wrote it and they published it. Um, and nothing really needed to make sense because they had a cool flag and they had a cool logo. So, <laughs> yeah. Designed the SLA flag as this red background. The red symbolized the blood of their enemies. And then in the middle of it was a coiled black cobra with seven heads that was ready to strike. Uh, oh, my goodness. And guaranteed any one of these kids is the kind of kid who will burst into tears when they get pulled over for speeding. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so the seven heads represented the seven principles of Kwanzaa, which had been invented about a decade earlier. Right. Um, and the idea of a cobra with many heads was inspired by the idea of a naga, which appears in South Asian religions. And by the way, I only found out yesterday that a female version of a naga is a nagini, which is the name of Voldemort's... Oh, from Harry Potter. Horcrux, yes. Yes. And that is probably my favourite fact that I've learned out of this whole thing. Oh. <laughs> God, these guys sound insufferable. Okay. Yeah, and obviously one of them, or at least one of them, studied marketing because they did a really good job of creating a very memorable brand here. Mm. Um, it was ugly and it was super lame, but their name got really, really good brand recognition and their logo also was something that people knew about all around yeah. the world when um, they started to get into the media. Um, so at their best, their ideals were mostly positive. There again, yeah. I want to ask, like, what is their purpose? What are they hoping to achieve, other than the blood of their enemies? Well, they basically want to eliminate any of the pain and suffering in the world. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, that's just doesn't everyone? <laughs> Essentially, I think they believe that they're either going to start a new country in North America that secedes from the USA or they're going Uh to overthrow the USA. They really don't seem to have an actual strategy here. So they don't have, and they don't have a like overarching end game, like, or purpose or anything. Okay. They get some tactical wins they're surprisingly lucky but they never seem to be able to articulate an actual end game so when when you say they the blood of their enemies blah 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 who are their enemies who do who don't they like the pigs they're really anti-police right um they're anti-establishment um but they're all from the establishment correct <laughs> they're at berkeley <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> we say they are against racism, they're against sexism, they're against ageism, they're against yeah. capitalism. Um, they also say that they're anti-booze, which is obviously where they lost me completely. Um, <laughs> it's uh, worth noting that um, Thank You, Donald DeFries, like all good yeah. cult leaders, didn't follow any of the rules. So every day you drink a couple of litres of plum wine. <laughs> 
Yes, always. Like Jim Jones would just stay in his little hut drinking soda and taking ecstasy and, yeah. Yeah. The rules apply to him and everyone in the group worshipped him because he was the only one who was actually black. And had actually been in prison and had actually lived some kind of life that lacked privilege. He had done some crime and so he had street cred. Yeah. Gotcha. Um. They really just had no idea what they were doing because this is, like you said, a group of upper middle class, idealistic white students who just had a taste for the dramatic. Uh, <laughs> they just improvise most of the time, do what you would tell them to do. Um, and now it's probably a good time to just explain what SLA means. So symbionese was just a made up word that oh, you really? up with. <laughs> Um, and it's based on symbiosis, which you know what that means, right? Is, um, yes, but why don't you tell me what you think it means? <laughs> so symbiosis is when two things live together and benefit each other. I mean, oh, like a symbiotic other. relationship. Exactly. Yes. So oh, like yes. See, I knew that. Big sharks that have those little fish that cling to their bellies, and the little fish eat the refuse that the shark leaves when it's eaten other fish Um, and the shark benefits because the little fish keep it nice and clean. Yes. So at the moment I'm keeping Caleb fed by cooking three meals a day and um, in exchange I'm getting lots of orgasms. (laughs) So we have a symbiotic living situation. Correct. Symbiotic, not symbionese. That is not a real word. Uh, okay. The most frequent example that Defreeze used was um, symbionese means the free helping the imprisoned and the imprisoned helping the free. Anyway, it's nonsense. Um, <sighs> I hate them all. They never did manage to actually liberate anyone or anything, but the <laughs> was to be able to liberate all people from oppression and ultimately form the Symbionese nation. So that was either going to be a small area of North America or potentially all of North America. Hey, maybe they were aiming for the globe. It's so nonsensical. Uh, But then the fact that they use the word army, that's the real stretch because at their peak, they had 12 members in the group. (laughs) And all of these 12 people were living together in a three-bedroom house, um, taking a whole lot of drugs and Mm. sleeping with each other because they were anti-monogamy. So everyone was just having it off with everyone else. Ah, right. Okay. And in between having it off with everyone and getting stoned out of their brains, they would hatch schemes to recruit more members and to gain more publicity and to spark their revolution. Yeah. So towards the end of 1973, they were still completely unknown to the world, but then they became very, very well-known and became a very high-profile group that people were scared of when they took responsibility for assassinating a guy called Marcus Foster. Had they actually done that or did they just take responsibility? They definitely did do it. Okay, okay. Um, on the orders of Donald DeFries, thank you. Yeah, um, okay. So Marcus Foster was just a simple school superintendent and I had to really force myself just now to not say Super Nintendo. Uh, every <laughs> time I read this word, I just heard Ralph from The Simpsons saying, I love you, Super Nintendo Chalmers. <laughs> Super Nintendo Chalmers. 
<laughs> okay, so he was a simple Super Nintendo. And Sinkyu saw him as a rival. He thought that Foster was a threat because he somehow just conjured this idea in his head that only one of them could become the leader of all the black people in America. Um, and this was probably the what? combination of the drugs and cheap plum wine, creating this sense of paranoia in him. So did this guy, this Super Nintendo, sorry, what was his name? Uh, Foster, Marcus Foster. Superintendent Foster, did he know, did he have a relationship with DeFries at all? Absolutely none whatsoever. So DeFries just knew of this black mm -hmm. school superintendent mm -hmm. and got it in his head that only one of them could rule the world. Uh, specifically the black population of the world. Right. Yes. Okay. And wow. so He's a nutter. He's clearly a nutter. So a few of the SLA members, which include um, a guy called Joseph Romero, whose code name was Bo, and <laughs> who started off with the code name Osceola but changed it to Aussie, waited until Marcus was leaving a school board meeting one day and they shot him and his deputy with these hollow-tipped bullets that they'd packed uh. cyanide. <gasps> yeah. And keep in mind that no one outside of students and only a small group of students at Berkeley had ever heard of the SLA. But then they issued a press release saying, we're the ones who did it. This is our logo. This is why we killed this guy. And so then all of a sudden the world's aware of this group of nutcases. They don't know how big or small they are. Um, mm. so people are then quite fearful of this anonymous group of thundering loonies with a seven-headed cobra as their symbol who are trying to start a revolution and mm. who for no apparent reason apart from the theatre of it all are using cyanide-tipped bullets, which no one had ever heard of before. It seems very much like overkill there, um, but it's oh um, a dramatic... They are. They're like little kids playing house. Like, remember when you were in primary school and at lunchtime you'd have those epic sort of role-playing games mm -hmm. of, like, you know, you all live in a cave and you've all escaped some scary thing and you're all doing this together and blah, blah, blah. It's like they're doing that, but they're adults. Yes. And when you're adults, like when you're kids, you don't have the capacity to take that imagined play any further because you're kids. But when you're adults, it gets to a point where you are playing pretend and then it morphs into actually filling bullets with cyanide and killing people. Mm -hmm. But you have to know in the back of your mind that this all started from you playing pretend. They decided to just keep going with it and the oh my God. getting wilder and wilder from there because you've got this group of frustrated thespians who want to make a positive difference in the world and they somehow think that this is going to be their way to do it. So then they've done a really good job of making the world aware of what they stand for even though mm -hmm. convoluted, and what their logo is and what their name is. And that becomes a bit of a problem for them a few weeks later because um, two of the members were pulled over by a cop car. These two members were Bo and Ossie, um, who were there at the assassination of Marcus Foster. And Ossie, who had done a do-over of his um, <laughs> code name. <laughs> it's just so much catchier, isn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so they were out running some errands. They went to pick up some artillery 
jewellery and then they were collecting some SLA pamphlets fresh from the printers because obviously you need a lot of literature when you're starting an army and wanting to recruit. Um, and this cop pulls them over. I'm not sure what for, but he looked in the back seat of the car and spotted the papers that were printed with the SLA logo of the Cobra on them. And he recognized Ruh-roh. it immediately. He told them both to exit the vehicle. They knew that they were mm-hmm. sprung. They drew their weapons. There was a <gasps> shootout, but there wasn't too much fuss or bloodshed. And then both Bo and Ossie were arrested. They were sentenced to life imprisonment for the murder of Marcus Foster, and that meant that the SLA was immediately down 20% of their membership in the <laughs> swoop. <laughs> the rest of the group had to come up with a plan to secure the release of these two imprisoned comrades, and that's when yeah. we get to the kidnapping, the main headline of what happened to Paddy Hurst. So okay. We're now in 1974, uh-huh. um, and up until this point, the SLA had already been workshopping plans to kidnap someone high profile as a way of getting more headlines for themselves and helping to boost brand awareness and membership. Uh-huh. Um, and we know this because when Ossie and Bo were apprehended, the rest of the group abandoned the house where they'd all been living, and they tried to burn all the evidence that they were leaving behind before the cops could find it and figure it out. Um, but none of them actually knew how to start a fire, so they. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot take it. <laughs> they suck so bad. <laughs> Oh, my God. I hope okay. embarrassed as they should be. Um, yeah. So they poured petrol everywhere. They lit a match and then they walked away, but they left all the doors and windows closed. So, of course, the fire quickly ran out of oxygen. And, yeah. and when the police got there, everything was pretty much perfectly preserved. <laughs> Yeah. Amongst all this evidence, they found this long list of potential kidnap targets and Paddy's name was on that list. But at no point did the police actually reach out to any of the potential targets and say, hey, this group of whack jobs might be coming for you sometime soon. So maybe look out because they still just weren't taking this group. Well, yeah, I will say, yes, they'd shot someone, Mm. but... Looking at them and just how ridiculously crap they are at everything, Mm. I would think as a police officer, there is no reason to petrify someone and make them go through, you know, their daily life thinking they're about to be kidnapped when this is seriously a bunch of idiot 20-year-olds who have no idea what they're doing. Like, why why frighten someone? And have evidence of an assassination. (laughs) Highly visible on the back seat of the car, yes. Yeah, like I can understand why the police wouldn't right. tell people Actually, that. Yeah. All right, so uh, the SLA now decided, though, that they have to go ahead with one of their kidnapping plans so that they can make a deal with the government and arrange an exchange of prisoners. So mm-hmm. they hand over their hostage and get Bo and Aussie back. And they decided they'd go for the easiest target available to them, which was Patricia Hurst. Because she was currently slumming it at Berkeley with her poor boy. Correct. So, two nights before the kidnapping, a couple of the SLA members knocked on the front door of Patty's house. Um, They were clearly there to scope the place out. There was no security and there was really easy access from the street and there weren't too many neighbours nearby. Um, 
they were rich and they were famous, but because, um, you know, Randy was one of several children, it was quite a large family. Um, mm. I didn't feel like it was necessary for them to have security or bodyguards already. Yeah. Um, and then a couple of nights later on February 4th, one of the SLA members knocked on the door of Patty and Stephen's house again and asked to use the phone saying that she'd crashed her car. So they let her in as soon as they let her in, two other SLA members burst through the door with machine mm. guns. Um, meanwhile, down on the street, three other members were waiting in three different getaway cars um, and Stephen, the fiance, the creepy dude with the moustache, just assumed that the break-in was a robbery and he started screaming, take whatever you want, take whatever you want. And Sinku mm. beat the crap out of him with his gun while the other two bound and gagged Patty and carried her out to the getaway car. Oh, that'd be so scary. Mm. Is this like the equivalent of, say, someone like, you know, uh, I don't know, Paris Hilton getting kidnapped? Yes. Yep. For us? Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. America doesn't have a royal family, but the Hurts yeah. at that time were kind of like a dynasty. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, yes. She was relatively well known. Yeah. So they make it back to the hideout and they throw Patty in a closet and they keep her there for almost two months. That becomes <gasps> residence. And at first it was a total mystery as to who had taken Patty and why they'd taken her. They didn't leave a ransom note. There were no demands that were made for a few days. Um, but it instantly became this media frenzy because, like we say, she was well known. Yeah. And it was like Paris Hilton going missing. Um, so reporters flooded to the Hearst mansion and they camped out in the front yard. Um, and every day, Stephen and the Hearst family would give them updates. But for the first few days, the only updates that they could give would be, we don't know who they are. We don't know what they want. We don't know when we'll hear from them. Yeah. And so it became a national and global obsession. What's happened to Patty? Who took her and why? And the fascination just kept growing. Can you imagine if someone like Paris Hilton was kidnapped? Like... And just disappeared. Yes. The media. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, and even just the kidnapping would get heaps of Yes. It's what happens next that really, really grips everyone. Um, yeah. Keeps them glued to the saga. Pardon me. So, in the course of next... Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Over the few months, Patty would end up on the cover of almost every newspaper and magazine in the world. She was on the cover of Newsweek seven times. Mm. And because the family was so high profile, everyone cared. And so they didn't have to go to the FBI for help. The FBI came directly to them. So the yeah. friends came and set up base camp in the Hearst mansion. They put 104 of their agents on the case immediately. Uh, mm -hmm. In addition to the FBI, though, the family hired four psychics to try to locate Patty <laughs> and her captains. Yeah. Um, and then finally, after a few days, the SLA came forward to claim responsibility. And this is the first of the communiques that the SLA issued. And by the way, I didn't know that this was a real word um, because, again, another Simpsons reference, I'd only ever heard Mr. Burns use the word communique and I thought it was... Oh, is that a real word? Yeah. Communique. Communique. Oh. Um, and get ready because I'm about to use it a lot from this okay. onwards. Um, so they sent a letter to the media confirming that they'd arrested Patty and they were keeping her a hostage as a prisoner of war. Yes, okay. And all of this information was shared really, really openly with the public. So Patty's father, Randy, read the communique to the media verbatim because part of the SLA's demands was to have 
all communiques that they shared um, published in all of the Hearst media outlets. Um, yeah. And so everyone around the world was knowing just as much as the Hearst family, essentially. So they were very clear Patty was going to be executed if any rescue attempt was made or if any SLA member was at any point arrested until this whole thing was sorted out. Yeah. Um, and they ended the communique just as they did every subsequent communique with their very catchy slogan, death to the fascist insect that preys upon the life of the people. <laughs> I hate them so much. <laughs> Oh, my God. Okay. Most of them are going to get their comeuppance. All right. So the following day, the next communique came out, which outlined their demands um, in return for Paddy's safe release. They wanted their comrades released from prison. But instantly, it was blatantly obvious that this was never, ever going to happen. Richard Nixon was the president at the time. And Reagan was the governor of California. And both of them were very conservative very, very strict on crime. So that was just a clear no. Um, meanwhile, as this is going on, Patty's kept in her closet. She was blindfolded anytime the SLA were nearby and they would wear ski masks all the time. And they gave her a flashlight to read with and the SLA manifesto and they forced her to memorize it and then recite it back to them several times a day. They wanted- Oh, well, that's something to do. <laughs> I mean, you're in a closet all day. If you're looking for a fun quarantine activity, <laughs> the SLA manifesto and um, they wanted her to be able to speak really knowledgeably about the group and about what they were aiming to achieve in the recordings that they made of her. And yeah. they believed that they were going to be releasing her pretty soon. And so they figured we need to get her to start cramming now so that when she's released to the public, she can effectively be um, our PR machine. Yeah. Smart. That's what you get when they're really just a bunch of smart kids who are studying marketing. <laughs> And theatre. They could have been great public relations people. (laughs) What could have been? What could have been? So February 12th, it's eight days after the kidnapping, they release a tape of Paddy um, and their new set of demands were finally made. So Paddy starts the recording with, Mom, Dad, I'm okay. I've had a few scrapes and stuff, but they've washed them up and I'm not being starved or beaten. And when you listen to this tape, she sounds completely bored. She probably was terrified, (laughs) but she just sounds so over everything. Um, And she's clearly been given talking points that she needs to stick to. Um, And they wanted her to make it very clear that the SLA was sticking to the Geneva Convention outlines of what it means to have a prisoner of war fairly. Right. Um, And Patty implored her parents do exactly what the SLA are demanding and do it quickly. And then she gets into talking through the demand. So as a gesture of good faith, the SLA wanted the Hearst family to give $70 worth of food to all of the needy people in California before they'd be willing to proceed with any further negotiation. So this is very Robin Hood because they wanted to make it really clear to the world and also clear to Patty that this wasn't about them making a profit. They weren't trying to cash in. They wanted to make a positive change in the world because they believe in their ideals. Sure. And at the time, about 22 million people lived in California. And if you were to estimate that a quarter of these people would line up and say, yes, please, I'll take $70 worth of free food, then that would be Mm. a $400 million 
food drive. Right. And Randy was rich, but he wasn't the sole heir of the Hearst fortune and he certainly didn't have access to that kind of money, but he was never going to admit that that was going to be completely impossible. He was too proud to say, I don't have $400 million available to me. Mm. Um, the Hearst family fortune was managed by a board, not by any of the actual family members. So effectively yeah. he got a generous allowance, but that was it. Um, he really, really wanted his daughter back safely, though she was his favorite. And so he was willing to do whatever he could. So as a gesture, he said, all right, I'll donate $2 million worth of food to the needy. So he established a new organization called People in Need. And they brought in these experts from another state to help um, recruit hundreds of volunteers who were going to help to distribute the food to the needy of California. Um, the food was going to be distributed in boxes that had the SLA Cobra logo. <laughs> Branding. It's all about brand awareness. That's like how um, last week uh, Donald Trump held up the issuing of uh, emergency social security checks to all the citizens because of corona because he wanted to have his signature printed on each check. Stop it. Yeah, so the the checks were delayed in getting to people for like three days because they had to go back and put print his signature <laughs> on each of them, which no president has ever requested his signature be on social security checks before until Trump. But it's branding. Branding. It's all about the logo. All right. Mm. Um, so they're working on these plans. Governor Reagan finds out about it and publicly stated that he was absolutely disgusted that the Hearsts were giving into terrorism. And he mm -hmm. said that he hoped anyone who accepted this free food would come down with a bad case of botulism. <laughs> he didn't think that well, okay. should be accepting food that was offered to them um, as ransom. Anyway, they set up 13 distribution points across um, California, and they expected that things would go fairly smoothly, but it became an absolute cluster. Um, people stormed the trucks and the volunteers just had to try to throw the food at people to try mm. to burst the crowd. Um, and of course it made headlines because it was absolute chaos and the SLA were very displeased by this. They felt that the Hearst family were insulting poor people by throwing crumbs at them and forcing them to fight over them. Um, and Patty was pretty annoyed as well, and she voiced some of her annoyance in one of the next communiques. Um, she was angry at the attempt at this gesture of goodwill. Uh, yeah. And she was also really angry about how her mother was behaving in front of the cameras. Um, so she takes this really obvious dig at her mother where she's saying, I'm not dead. You've got to stop acting like I'm dead. Tell my mother to stop wearing that black dress because it's not helping anything. I'm not <laughs> Um, anyway, at this point, Randy Hurst has to admit to the media that this is beyond his financial capability and he says, it's now out of my hands. Um, yeah. And when Patty hears and sees her father say this, she was absolutely crushed and the SLA really reinforced this with her saying, your father refused to do this for you, your family doesn't care about you. Um, and she believed that the family had access to a lot more money than they actually did. Yeah. Anyway, so Patty issues another communique and she is pissed. She says, I don't believe you're doing everything that you you can. You said that this is out of your hands and what you should have said was that you washed, you, washed your hands of it and of me. Um, and she didn't sound like a prisoner or a victim anymore at this stage. Mm. Um, 
she'd been making pretty close connections with all of the SLA members because keep in mind there's nine or ten of them living in this really, really small house 24-7. You kind of know what that's like. Um, <laughs> and she'd been a pretty cooperative prisoner with them as well. So they were pretty sympathetic to her. Her only act of resistance was that initially she refused to eat um, until she would see someone take a spoonful of the food they were offering her first to prove that it wasn't poisoned. Mm-hmm. So anyway, they're figuring out, out what their next steps are going to be because they've made the next demand and they've been told no. So they don't know, all right, do we let her go? Do we kill her? Do we ask for something else? And then at mm. that point, Catherine accepted an offer from Ronald Reagan to be appointed as a regent at um, Berkeley University. And that was her way of saying publicly, I'm not going to bow down to these hoodlums. I'm going to take on an administrative high-level role at this college and clean things up and shut down some of these protests. So this was a big slap in the face to the SLA, Catherine saying, I'm... And that's Patty's mum. Patty's mum, correct. Yeah. So then the decision was made, all right, Patty is going to become a member of the SLA and they accept yeah. her into the cell. And so on the 3rd of April, um, the sixth communique came through and Patty expressed her disappointment about her parents' response to the whole situation and she sounded really, really pissed. And she said that she'd been offered the choice by the group to either be released somewhere safely or to join them. And she said, I've chosen to stay and fight. I now have a new name. Mm. I am Tanya. She named herself after Che Guevara's um, rad. And she, from this point onwards, my real parents are Malcolm X and a female member of the Black Panthers. Oh, no, they're not, sweetie. They're not. They're not your real parents. <laughs> um, so how many months had this been? How many months did it take for her to get to this point? Two. Two months, okay. On the 4th of Feb, April 3rd, she then comes out yeah. and says, I'm now an SLA member, fatherland or death, we shall triumph. <laughs> okay. And this came out of left field. So this was a huge shock to everyone and there was all this speculation in the media that, okay, maybe this is a hoax and maybe it's just a bit of a stunt that the SLA have pulled together. But if it is real, if she has joined the SLA, then she's either been coerced or mm. she's chosen to join the SLA of her own free will. So there's lots of public debate about which is it. Anyway, the main thing that they needed to do was to prove that Patty had actually joined the SLA and they also happened to need money. So this is where the machine gun ballet comes in. <laughs> famous bank robbery. So this was a huge publicity stunt, highly uh -huh. effective publicity stunt as well. This was their way of showing the world that Patty's now a fully-fledged member of the SLA. They found a bank that had security cameras, which was a pretty new technology at the time, mm -hmm. um, called the Hibernia Bank, and they stage-directed the whole robbery beautifully. They I didn't know that. I never knew that it was all for publicity. Yes. They did get cash, but it was only $10,500. The main yeah. thing that they needed to do was make it clear to the world, Patty is now one of us. And they, oh. had, and they had costumes and they had props. These well, they are theatre kids. Machine guns. They knew what they were doing and they yeah. made sure Patty was front and centre. So she stood where she had maximum exposure to the cameras. She announced mm -hmm. herself as Tanya and said the first man who puts his head up or blow his mother head off um, <laughs> how to use a gun for this stunt um but 
it didn't work. She tried to fire it into Aww, the... Oh, she's just a rich kid playing pretend. And it didn't work. It didn't work. What did work was that then the world knew, okay, this is for real. She's now part of this whack dog. Yeah. Her parents straight away went to the defence of she's a victim of thought control and obviously they had guns pointed at her and her life was at risk if she didn't comply with what mm. they were doing this robbery. Um, so they said that publicly. So Patty then comes out in the next communique saying, um, no, I am a soldier and no one was pointing a gun at me. I was under no influence. I made this decision myself. This was my own mm. free. I am the worst kind of person, a white, privileged, rich kid trying to be woke. Correct. This is what happens. <laughs> so then all around Deal the with it, mum and dad. <laughs> Deal with it. And My name's Tanya now. I told you a million times, don't call me Patty. She's hate her. Mum and dad as well. She just refers to them as the Hearst pigs from this point onwards. Oh, my God. She sucks. She just needs a smack on the bum with a wooden spoon. All right. So you've got this image of Patty in a long black wig and a black beret pointing a machine gun, yelling, and it becomes really compelling TV. So That's the famous sort of image that everyone knows. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the cops start swarming. So they need to, they know that they need to get out of the San Francisco Bay Area and lay low for a while. So they relocated to Los Angeles. They found a temporary house in the ghetto near Compton. Um, but including Patty, their newest member, they now have nine people there in this house in LA. And it's getting really hard for them to be able to move around as a group without drawing attention to themselves. So. Mm. They decide for at least a few months we need to split up into three groups of three. And so then when the members were sort of drawing straws and deciding who's going to be on which of the teams, no one really wanted Patty. (laughs) She was picked last because she was the liability of the group. She was the Mm. most recognisable and she had the least experience um, and she was also still the least trusted in the group. I bet she also just sucked. Uh, yeah, probably. I bet uh, she was also just an annoying little rich girl who wasn't, you know, insufferable. Yeah. yeah. So she realizes that she needs to do something more to prove her loyalty to the group to be truly accepted by them. But begrudgingly, Bill and Emily Harris, who are a married couple, they're married, but they still sleep with all the other members of the group because they yeah. don't monogamy. Yeah. Uh, they take one for the team and they accepted Patty in as their third wheel. And then on May 16th, just before the three groups of three split up, Emily and Bill take Patty out for a shopping expedition so that they can get supplies for everyone. And this is quite a famous incident as well. Um, so they drive to a store nearby that's called Mel's Sporting Goods. Mm-hmm. And for obvious reasons, Bill and Emily left Patty in the car because she's got one of the most recognisable faces on the planet right now. And while they're in the store, Bill spots a bandolier, which is like a gun holder slingy thingy, um, and knows that it would be a perfect fit for a gun that Emily happens to need a bandolier for. And he picked it up and he checked it out and then he was carrying it around the store with all intention to purchase it for a few mm-hmm. minutes. He realizes, oh, this might actually look a bit suspicious if I buy a bandolier for a giant machine gun. So he just <laughs> down on a random shelf and kept shopping. Mm. One of the shop attendants at Mel Sporting Goods saw Bill pick the bandolier up and then he noticed that Bill didn't actually pay for a bandolier when they put through their transaction at the register. Mm-hmm. 
guy happened to be studying to become a cop. And so he knew that he had to let Bill leave the store in order for a crime to be committed for him Mm -hmm. to to then intervene and apprehend this guy for shoplifting. Pardon me again. So he waited till Bill and Emily walk out the door and he yells out, Bill! And Bill's asshole just immediately clenched in terror because (laughs) this guy somehow knew his name. But it turns out that the shop assistant was just calling for his manager, whose name also happened to be Bill. Ah. Bill turns around panicked and the shop assistant tells him that he thinks he might have stolen something and he needs to search him and Bill freaks out, screams and just starts to try to run away and the shop assistant just quickly tackles him and tries to perform a citizen's arrest. So Mm -hmm. Bill on the ground Mm. and then all dozens of bullets start flying into (laughs) above their heads and to the awning above them and everyone hits the ground and Bill and Emily look across the road and they see that is holding a machine gun from the driver's side window of the van and she just keeps shooting until she (gasps) two magazines worth of ammo and Bill and Emily sprint over to the VW van and they jump in and they drive off. I love that that's her reaction to them just getting, like, hassled about shoplifting. It kind of reminds me how everyone in the eastern suburbs is reacting right now when they get told they're not allowed on Bondi Beach. (laughs) (laughs) Just open fire. Just open fire. How dare you? Yeah. Okay. Anyway, the shop assistant wasn't done, so he came back outside and he starts to shoot at them as they drive off, but they get away. They drive a few blocks and then the car just completely dies. Uh-huh. And then at this point, Bill spots these two guys hanging out in their front yard and he runs up to them and says, hey, I'm with the SLA. We need your car. The guy willingly gives him his keys because he knows he's heard of the SLA. Um, mm. Either intimidated or he thinks, yeah, you guys are the good guys. You're the Robin Hood figures trying to give money to the poor. Um, so they drive off in that car and then three hours later, they're still driving around in that. They realize this is only a sedan. We need a van or something with all the artillery that we've got to move around because we're a very serious army. Um, and then they spot a van that's got a for sale sign in the window. So they go and knock on the door of the house where the van is parked. And this 18 year old guy opens up the front door. Emily flashed him a charming smile. She'd been in a sorority before she joined the SLA, so she knew how to flirt quite well. Um, Mm. She said, could we possibly take your van for a test drive? And Tom's charmed and he says, yeah, of course, let's get into the van. They get into the van and then Emily says, can my friends join us? Bill and Patty materialize beside the van and Bill gestures to the machine gun. He's hiding under his jacket. Mm -hmm. All pile into the van and Tom, who is one of the most lovable characters in this whole saga, is just stoked that he gets to meet these real-life celebrities that he's seen on TV. (laughs) Knows who Patty is. He knows all about the SLA and he's like, my friends are never going to believe this. (laughs) And he was really happy to be taken hostage by them as long as they got him home in time for his baseball game the next day. I love Tom. And he listened to all their stories and Patty really proudly told him of how she saved her comrades because that was how she proved that she was a true member of the SLA from this point on. Mm. Um, And they even let Tom do the honours of sawing off the handcuff that was still on Bill's wrist. 
Mm-hmm. And together, the four of them headed to the agreed meeting point that they had should any members of the SLA get separated, which was a drive-in cinema. And to notify the rest of the group, this is us, here we are, they put an empty coffee cup on the roof of the van and they sat down and enjoyed a movie, which happened to have lots of um, police shootouts and any time a cop got gunned down, they would all cheer together, including mm-hmm. Tom, because he was getting swept up in all of it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, no one from the SLA came along and so then Emily came up with a backup plan and she decided that she and Bill and Patty were going to go hide out in a place that she knew quite well because she'd worked there two summers when she was growing up, <gasps> Disneyland. Ah, uh, fun. it didn't take them very long until they realised that they probably wouldn't be reuniting with the rest of the SLA anytime soon because... The incident at Mel's Sporting Goods drew a lot of media and police attention for obvious reasons. She'd emptied however many magazines of ammo into the storefront. Sinku mm-hmm. so and the other five members of the SLA saw it on the TV news and they realised that their secret hideout location was probably going to be compromised pretty soon and the police were going to figure out where they were. And they were correct. Emily had left a parking ticket in the VW van that they abandoned and the parking ticket had the address of the hideout on it. So <laughs> the SLA members so were smart enough to very quickly pack everything up that they could and they moved to another safe house a few blocks away just before the FBI got to the original LA hideout. Yeah. And then this old black woman approached them and said, are you looking for those white folks with the guns? They're in my daughter-in-law's house. And she pointed to a house a few doors. <laughs> One of the cops just sort of sneaks up to the house from outside, he can hear Sinku yelling orders at the other members of the SLA. So they knew that they'd found their new little hideout headquarters, um, which was the house of a friend of a friend that they just decided that they could commandeer because they're an army. Um, And the LAPD knew that the SLA could potentially be violent. So luckily they started evacuating people from five square blocks surrounding that house and they set up different snipers and then someone alerted the media so the journalists just started swarming and this i found kind of interesting this is the first time ever that there is a live broadcast of something happening in the world um up until this point journalists would have to go out on location and they'd record on film bring the film back to the studio and then they'd broadcast it they just created this new technology that meant that you could broadcast live from on location with these mini cams that they'd come up with exciting around the world people are watching live coverage of what happens next and bill and emily and patty were watching all of this go down as well yeah so the police try to coerce the group to leave they get no response whatsoever so then the lapd fired tear gas grenades into the house yeah at that point the slas just start firing back with this deluge of ammo they've adapted these guns so that they can fire 1,300 rounds per minute. Um, And then all of a sudden this Los Angeles suburb becomes a war zone and the siege went on for a couple of hours and became the biggest shootout in American history. The police (laughs) fired 5,000 rounds of ammo into the house and the SLA fired 3,000 units out of the house and that still holds the record in the US for biggest shootout ever with these kids. All because they were a bunch of kids who started playing pretend and this is where it leads to. And everyone in the world believed that Patty was inside the house as well. Ah, yes, of course. 
Patty, Bill and Emily. So the whole world is just watching this with rapt attention. Yeah. Anyway, then the tear gas happens to be flammable, so it catches fire and the police starts to go up in flames. Even still, the SLA just keep firing at the police as the place burns down, but then finally it collapses and the gunshots stop and all six of the SLA members who are inside are dead. And for Wowzers, uh, really? Yeah. So Sinku and five others die on that day in that place and Bill, Emily and Patty watched the whole thing happen on TV. And for a short while when the bodies were brought out of the house um, and they were obviously very badly burnt, everyone believed for a while that Patty was one of the bodies um, (gasps) in the house at the time until the dental records proved that none of the bodies belonged to Patty. And then a few days after that, Patty released a communique to the fascist pig media, um, sending a tape to a radio station, and it was a eulogy for all of her beautiful sisters and brothers that had lost their lives on that day, her fallen comrades. Oh, my God. And then she went into hiding. And over the next year, which they call Patty's missing year, she and Emily and Bill, along with a couple of other suckers that they managed to pick up along the way, moved around from the West Coast to the East Coast and back to the West Coast. And Mm. they planted a few unsuccessful homemade bombs under police cars to try to kill some cops. And they robbed two more banks. And during the second of these robberies at the Crocker Bank in California, Emily shot and killed a pregnant mother of four. (gasps) And at that robbery, Patty was the getaway driver. So after that robbery, um, within a few weeks, the police were able to successfully find and arrest all of the remaining members of the SLA, of which there were only a few. Um, So Patty was discovered in San Francisco on the 18th of September 1975. It was only about 19 months since she'd originally been kidnapped. Mm. And she stood trial and the whole world debated whether she'd been coerced into the terrible thing she did or if she'd done it all of her own free will. Well, this is like where it becomes one of what people consider the most famous cases of Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. Yes. So the two most frequently used terms in the case were Stockholm Syndrome and brainwashing, and they were relatively new terms. Brainwashing was a little bit older. They came up with that to describe what had happened to American prisoners of war who'd been captured by the North Korean army who um, released tapes of them pledging allegiance to North Korea after they'd been in captivity for a while and they'd been programmed. Um, And Stockholm syndrome was actually a very, very new term because that siege that happened in Stockholm after Mm. named Stockholm syndrome only happened in 1973. Right. Okay. Yeah. Neither of these are actually medical terms either. They're just journalistic terms. Yeah. Um, What she actually claimed to have as her defense was traumatic neurosis. And she was evaluated by a few different psychiatrists and psychologists and their diagnoses were pretty inconsistent. But her defense was based on the idea that she had been forced to do everything that she did, that she was no longer able to think for herself. She'd been programmed by this group. But what really mattered at the end of the day, both for her and against her, was that she had her family's money and her family's influence on her side. Mm-hmm. So she was able to get some of the best lawyers in the country and those lawyers pretended to have a ruling from the judge saying that there were certain questions that the prosecution was just not allowed to ask. Um, this was 
totally made up. But the judge happened to be really unwell at the time, so he didn't pull the defence team up on this. And, in fact, the judge died shortly before Paddy's sentencing, so he was probably barely even paying attention throughout the whole trial. Yeah. Paddy, therefore, was allowed to plead the Fifth Amendment 42 times in the duration of the trial so that she didn't say anything that might potentially incriminate her. Uh-huh. But then it turns out that her wealth might have worked against her because the popular sentiment at the time was that she was this rich girl who should be punished because um, basically the poor folk of America wanted to see someone take a fall. How quickly did she, upon being uh, arrested, did she uh, stop uh, believing in SL whatever? SLA. Um, SLA. Immediately. (laughs) That's why the question is, is she actually just the world's most famous turncoat? Because as soon as she was rescued, as she says, arrested, yeah, all of a sudden she could go back to being normal Patty who could think for herself. Yeah, okay. So in the end, she was found guilty of several of the charges that were brought against her and she was sentenced to seven years in prison, which is very, very light when you think about the fact that she was machine guns at people, she robbed banks, she planted bombs under police cars and she was involved in a murder. Uh, If she was like a 20-year-old black kid, she'd get life in prison. Correct. If not... The death penalty. Yeah. Yeah. So she was sentenced to seven years, but luckily for her, her family were very good friends with President Jimmy Carter. Uh-huh. And also luckily for her, in 1978, the Jonestown Massacre happened and people uh-huh. started to really take the idea of brainwashing seriously. Yeah. So President Carter commuted Patty's sentence, which means that she was released from prison but she was still technically a felon. She still had a record. She still couldn't vote in any elections and she could never work for the government. But Mm. she was released after only two years in jail and she started getting on with building a normal life. So she acted in a few John Waters movies, including Serial Mum. Yeah. And she started breeding... Loved that movie when I was a kid. (laughs) Um, She walked in a Terry Moogler fashion show and she married her bodyguard and had two kids and just lived the classic suburban housewife lifestyle. And then in the final days of President Clinton's administration, Jimmy Carter reached out to him and said, look, my biggest regret from my administration was that I never pardoned Patty Hearst completely. Ah. Uh, So I think that would be something really great for you to do before you finish up your tenure as president. So President Clinton completely pardoned. Patty. So why do people fall all over themselves to forgive rich white ladies? Power, influence, money. Yeah. What the Hearst family has. Um, can I quickly ask what what happened to Bill and um the other his wife? Those two. What did they get? They both went to prison for a relatively short amount of time. Emily, Uh, Bill separated. So Emily now goes by Emily Montague and she's just living a pretty peaceful, relaxed, laid back lifestyle as a computer programmer at Mm -hmm. once again. (laughs) And um, Bill, when he left prison, he became a private investigator who works for um, basically finding evidence that's going to help defend people who are in situations similar to the one he found himself in. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, So this means that we now get to the editorial part of this discussion, which is, was she actually brainwashed 
or not. And I don't believe that she was. And I guess no, I don't think so. <laughs> you don't either. Because how would this group of kids be able to brainwash someone so effectively that she then had so many opportunities to be able to escape and chose not at any point to leave the group or to find some sort of help? I think she got caught up doing something fun and exciting and different to her life. It reminds me of when I, because you know how I grew up with my addict parents and in and out of the foster system and I had a pretty shitty childhood. Mm. And when I eventually um, uh, had a relative pay for me to go to a private boarding school, I cannot count the amount of snooty rich kids at that school who would say things like, oh my gosh, you've had such an exciting life. Like you've had such an interesting life. Like they would say things like, gosh, I wish like I had such an interesting story to tell. Like like the amount of those kids that would say things like that to me, mm-hmm. it's they think that there's glamour in um, in like disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what it was. It was just exciting to do something different and she got right into it. Completely. And then as soon as the police came and she was like, oh, shit, I could go to prison, she was like, oh, it was pretty much meh. Yeah. And all around the country, these different colleges were putting up posters saying, we love you, Tanya, with the big picture of her holding a machine gun in front of the seven-headed cobra because she became this icon of someone who threw off the shackles of wealth and privilege and started fighting for the proletariat. And she well, look, totally got off on that. I can't say that I'm devastated that it all happened because many, many years later, we got to have the masterpiece piece that is Moira Rose <laughs> doing. <laughs> what is it called? Five, six, seven, eight. Five, six, seven, eight, Patty. Um, yes, the machine gun ballet was part of One Crazy Summer, the Patty Hearst story. Before we wrap <laughs> it up, I just have to tell you three more instances that prove that she could have left at any point, but yeah. chose not to. And I do believe that it was a choice, not brainwashing. So one time she was pulled over. This is in her missing year. She was pulled over and given a speeding ticket and she just gave a fake name. Yeah. Another time she went out hiking and she fell into a poison oak bush and so yeah. had to go to hospital and seek treatment for the poison oak. So she was admitted to hospital again under a fake name that she just made up. Yeah. And then my favorite one of all, she went out hiking with her new boyfriend who she took up with once she lost Cujo in the fire in LA. Um, mm. They were out hiking and they got stuck on a ledge and they had to be helicopter airlifted out. And again, she just gave a fake name. And at no point in any of these instances was she actually recognised by anyone. She was having fun slumming it. Mm -hmm. And that is the frustrating thing about particularly white, privileged, rich people is that they can slum it because to them they can just dip in and out of it as they please, like a fashion statement. You know what I mean? It's like how people get annoyed with people like Miley Cyrus appropriating black culture because they're like, you can dip in and do all the fun parts, but you're not getting pulled over for no reason and you're not getting, you know, daily racist attacks against you. You're not earning, you know, 30 cents less on the dollar than white women are. It's like... She just wanted to dip her toe into, you know, mm-hmm. disadvantage and crime because she knew at the end of the day, as soon as she wants to, she can dip out and walk in a Terry Mugler fashion show. Mm-hmm. Right. She sucks. Oh. All of this sucks. <laughs> the worst people in the world are privileged, rich white kids trying to be woke. Mm-hmm. Go and just 
get in the bin. <laughs> it's a good story though, right? It's a really good story. That was very good. Thank you so much, Jacob. And you really were very much prepared on a day that I very much was not. <laughs> and I have no excuse except I got drunk last night and wanted to look nice today. So you took one for the team and it was very entertaining. So More next week, it's all on me, I promise. All right, honey. Well, I look forward right. to that. Love you. you look cool. Go show you. Thank off. you. Well, yeah, I'm going to literally go straight home because that's all I'm allowed to do. But it felt nice to have something on my face for a little while. Okay. All right, love you. Bye. Listener.